We're going to take a minute, and uh, I'm going to move forward with our message today. Um, I want to take a second, just uh, clear my throat if that's okay, and then we're going to be looking at Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to take a look at that. We're going to be looking and diving into that passage of Scripture. You have heard me say several times that you cannot have the cross without Christ, but you also cannot have Christ without the cross. And this morning, we're going to be diving into a passage that really um, demonstrates this fact and the importance of Christ's death on the cross so that we might have life. We're going to be examining, essentially, the aspect of Christ's humanity. What I want to do in this time is help you to see that as we're speaking, we have to remember and recognize that Christ is fully God and fully human. But the aspect of Christ's humanity is what brings about the relationship that we share with Jesus, particularly in the passage that we're speaking. We've been traveling through Hebrews, and for those of you that are newer or visiting today, uh, the purpose of this is to demonstrate the greatness of Christ the superiority of Jesus. The book of Hebrews, we've learned, uh, was written about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection from the grave. And what we come to discover was that individuals who had been following Jesus were beginning to doubt the faith that they had. They were beginning to slip away. They were beginning to either add Old Testament doctrine back in or just remove their faith and trust in what Christ had done. And the reason that the author goes in and spends multiple applications demonstrating to the people that Christ is better than, that's the motivation of what we have. But one of the things that is interesting and one of the things that they were discovering and was being found was that the Jews who had turned Christian were beginning to doubt why God would die on a cross. To them, you can't have a Messiah, the Savior of mankind, be subjected to such a travesty, such an embarrassment, such a finite thing. So this morning, I'm going to ask this question. We're going to examine this. And several of us look at this and we recognize its importance. But what I want to share with you is... When we understand the power of the cross and the humanity of Christ, it is what enables us to relate and be related to fully by our Lord and Savior Jesus. The question this morning that we're asking is, how can Christ be the Savior of mankind when he died such a miserable death? And the reason that I'm bringing this up is other religions, particularly the Jewish faith, but also the Islamic faith, will look and they will say the fundamental problem with the Christian faith is that they are stating that the Savior of humanity was willing to subject himself to the torturous death of the cross. That wouldn't happen if there was a true God, the maker of the world. What I'm trying to share with you this morning is Oftentimes, we look and we realize that Christ's death on the cross by other people can be viewed as something that isn't possible, that isn't valuable, that isn't important, because God would not subject himself to those things. And so what I want to share this morning is that we have to understand that during this time, 
Many Jewish Christians were struggling with the fact that their long-awaited Messiah would die a miserable death upon a cross. The cross was, and continues to be for many, a huge stumbling block for them. The question that they were asking was simply this. How could, be, how could Jesus be greater than the angels if angels never die? How could he be savior if he himself was killed? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 5 through 18 of chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews. And this is what we see. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And he says, here I am, and the children of God have given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And don't miss this. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And that is the devil. And free those and all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angel he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, this morning I've said that you cannot have Christ without the cross, and you cannot have the cross without Christ. And for many, the cross is something that is humiliating. For many, it is something that they would look and they would say, how could an almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, subject himself to such a lowly and miserable fate? But this morning, what we see in this passage is Christ did so that we, in our full humanity, could be reconciled back to Christ, fully and wholly. Not only might we be saved, but what we're going to discover is that we would be free from slavery, which is sin and death, and the grip of the enemy over our lives. But not only would we be freed, 
we would not be freed to then live our lives independently of God. We would be freed to become co-heirs with Jesus Christ and sharing in the glory of his kingdom. That's what this passage is about. And so when you look at the cross, you must recognize that for many, it is something that is very humiliating. For many, people would look and they would say, how can you worship a God who died on a cross? And you can say, I worship a God who died on a cross so that I, in my frailty and in my humanity and my sin, could be brought fully back to him and share as a co-heir in his kingdom. That's what this is all about. So this morning, I want to take a minute, and I'm going to break this down for you. First and foremost, I want you to take a look, particularly at verses 5 through 9, and what we're seeing here is this, that Christ's death on the cross is his crowning achievement. It is not a disastrous failure. And that is so important, particularly when you're talking to people of other religions, when they look and they ask a simple question, how can you worship a God who died on the cross? And you can turn to them and you can say the cross is everything. Because in the cross is how Christ saves me and brings me back to himself. One of the things that I think is uh, important to see, and I want to show this to you. First and foremost, you have to remember and recognize that we've been working through this passage. And the author is explaining Christ's superiority to angels. Now, we've said before, angels are big things. We realize back in the Old Testament that the angels were the one that would present themselves when something was going to occur, when God was going to do something big. We realize that angels were the one that announced the arrival and the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here the author is saying, remember and recognize, as you begin to drift away, as you begin to doubt what's been given to you, as you begin to doubt what Christ has done, that Christ is superior to the angels in every way. And sometimes we look and we think, well, that's not our problem. But let me ask you this. We talked about drifting away last week. How many of you in your Christian faith, when things don't go well, begin to look and turn to other things to try to appropriate or compensate for the doubt, fear, anger, questions that you might have? Jesus is okay, but it's not going the way that I want. So I'm going to have a little bit of Jesus, but I'm going to turn over here as well. And what the author is saying is, don't turn to other things. And he's making a statement, and he's saying Jesus is better because he's the best of the best, and we can forget all of the rest. He starts off in, in verse 5. He says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. And interestingly enough, what he does here is this, these following lines are a direct quotation out of Psalm 8, uh, verses 4 and 6, about the beauty of humanity. That's what he's talking about here. And basically what he's saying is, is remember the fact that the Almighty God is looking and saying that I care about you and that you are mine. And as the psalmist writes, he's thinking through his brain and he's saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And then watch this. He says, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. So in full humanity, brothers and sisters in Christ, may we recognize our position before God that the created order is under our feet. 
And that's how it's supposed to be. We were meant to reign in this world. We were meant to be the ones who are over this world. And the created order was meant to be subjected to us. Then he continues on, and he says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. That's how it's supposed to be. But look at the next verse. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Things are out of created order, aren't they? Why? Because man decided to go their own way, and there was inflicted the curse upon mankind of which we all endure through Adam and Eve. And so the created order as designed by God has been messed up, for lack of a better word. And today, while Christ reigns in his kingdom, in this world, another individual reigns, and that is the devil. Now, God is over the devil, but the devil has reigning authority here today. And so what we see is this aspect of the already but not yet idea of theology that is when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are whole, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are members of his kingdom, we are members of the coming kingdom, but today in this world, it's not yet. Because in this world, it is broken. And we await the second coming of our Messiah. He continues on, and he says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. Being higher than the angels, this is the point that the author is making, being greater than the angels, Christ was willing to subject himself to be lower than the angels for a moment in his humanity so that in our brokenness and in our frailty, we could be exalted back to Christ. And that is the God that we worship. That is the God who goes to the cross and is subjected to this miserable death so that in our frailty, we might be brought back to life. And that's a God that I want to worship. A God that is so good, so powerful, the maker of creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who has brought all and done all, who doesn't have to care about me, goes to the point that he limits himself to be lower than the angels in his death so that in my humanity I might have life. It's interesting. Because notice this verse, it says, we are currently a little lower than angels, but this is not our intended position. We're going to discover in a minute that we currently are lower than the angels, but all creation has been put under our feet. We are meant to be exalted into Christ's kingdom and co-heirs with Jesus. That's what is supposed to happen when we have salvation in Christ. Interestingly enough, Stephen Cole says this about this passage. He says, you may feel weak, despised, or insignificant in this evil word, world, but take courage. In Christ we are more than conquerors. Although it is difficult to fathom, in the ages to come we will reign with Christ in his kingdom. If you had trusted Christ as the one who bore your sins on the cross, then God has imputed his righteousness to you. Don't miss this. If you have trusted Christ 
for your salvation, then through Christ's death on the cross, he has paid for your sins, as Tom has said, and imputed, given over his righteousness to you. He's paid your debt. And he does so and did so by dying on a cross, the most humiliating, agonizing means by which we have been saved. And so when the world looks at the cross and says, how can you worship a God who died on a cross? How can you subject yourself to someone who is so majestic but died such a miserable death? You can turn to them and you can say, I worship a God who died on a cross because in my frailty, Christ's death imputed righteousness to me. And it wasn't my own righteousness, it was his. He paid my debt. And then we continue on, and we see the author working through this passage. And in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Okay? Don't miss this. We now see Jesus crowned with glory. He's going back to remind them of his death, but also his resurrection from the grave. And that's why you cannot preach the doctrine of salvation without the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says it himself, if Christ has not risen from the grave, then we are dead in our sins, and we of mankind are the most to be pitied. We are the biggest fools. But if indeed he has risen from the grave, of which he has done, he has now brought about salvation to mankind through his death on the cross so that we might have life and imputed righteousness to us. He was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because why? What's the, what's the purpose? Because he suffered death. So in a sort of almost a reverse order, he's saying, look, he's crowned there and he has triumphed over death, but you now have to take it back to the cross of what it is that you are saying you despise, that you're embarrassed about, that you don't want to worship a savior who died on a cross. And the purpose statement, so that by the grace of God, don't, don't miss this, so that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, may taste death for everyone. That's a, that's a sermon in and of itself right there. Jesus subjects himself to taste death for you and I when we are the ones who deserve the death, when we are the ones who have chosen to go away from God, when we are the ones who had everything given to us in the garden and we said it isn't enough, and we chose to say we want more, we want to be our own gods. God, what are you hiding from us in that tree? God comes forward and he says, I'm willing to taste death for you so that you might have my righteousness and live. And the power of the cross becomes, oh, the much more greater. And when the world looks at it and says, that's the most humiliating thing to worship your God, you look and you can say, that is the absolute reason why I worship my king. The first thing that we see 
is that Christ's death on the cross is his crowning achievement and not a disastrous failure. We would not have what we have without the cross. We would not have what we have without Christ. And that's why I have said you cannot have the cross without Christ and you cannot have Christ without the cross. That is Christ's mission and that is his crowning achievement. But the other thing that I want to share with you this morning is this. It's one thing to save us from our sins. It's one thing to say, you guys are in trouble, you need a savior, I'll come in and I'll do this for you. And when I'm done, I don't want to be bothered with you. I'll get you out of slavery. Okay? That's, that's what could have happened. I'll give you this. I'll get you out of slavery to the devil. I will get you out of the debt that you owe. But when I'm done, get away from me. That's what God could have done. But watch what he does do because he cares and loves for us so much. The next thing that we see in verses 10 through 13 is this. Because of Christ's death and resurrection from the grave, we are no longer spiritual orphans. We're no longer left to wander on our own. We're no longer left to figure things out on our own. But we are brought into the family of God and we are co-heirs with Jesus of what is what we're going to see in just a minute. He continues on and he says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is the one who makes men holy. We've just talked about the fact that his death on the cross is what imputes righteousness to us and makes us holy before God. That's what the author is saying right here. But then he says, not only does he make them holy, watch this, he says they are of the same family. Wait a minute. You mean that I'm unholy and I've chosen not to follow God and I'm dead in my sin and Christ is willing to come and die upon a cross and be humiliated so that I might have life and have the righteousness of God given to me because he pays the debt for my sins but then I also get to be part of his family? I don't have to wander. I'm not left to be alone. I'm not an orphan from God. I'm not saved but then left to wander. I'm brought to be a son or a daughter of the living king. That's what's going on right here. And let me tell you this. The author's point is he's saying as great as angels are, he's not doing that for them. He's doing it for you. That's what's being talked about here. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Notice as you travel through the scriptures when Jesus talks to his disciples. He doesn't say, you lowly subjective servants whom I'm freeing from slavery bow to me now. He says, brother, you're my family. Or sister, you're my family. That's what's going on here. And Jesus isn't ashamed. 
And the reason that he's not ashamed and the reason that he doesn't have to be ashamed is because he was willing to share fully in our humanity, yet he never sinned. Jesus' full humanity is what allows us to become brothers and co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus' deity is what exalts us to that position. He says, and then quoting from Psalm 22 and also texts out of Isaiah 8, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Jesus is saying, I'm not ashamed of you. Now, uh, I'm going to just say this. How many of you have a family member that's kind of the oddball, right? The odd uncle, right? Or the odd aunt, right? How many of you are kind of like, mm, you know, we're having a family reunion. Everybody's coming. And look out. And Is anybody named Joe here? Nobody named Joe? Okay, because I don't want anybody to feel bad. Remember Uncle Joe is going to be there, right? And Uncle Joe comes, and everybody's kind of like, good to see you, Uncle Joe, you know. Right? As funny as this is, that's what's being talked about. Jesus isn't looking and saying, yeah, I'm ashamed of these individuals. I'm ashamed of you. I've done this, and you're part of my family, but, but I don't... I don't Watch out for Uncle Joe. That's not what's going on here. What's happening is, is Jesus is saying, I died for you, I paid the price for you, I've bought you with my flesh and blood so that you can be saved from your slavery and you can be my brother or my sister. Okay? Recognize in this time, brothers implies all. And I'm not ashamed of you. This is my brother. This is Trevor. He is a co-heir with me in God's kingdom. That's what's happening here. But Christ had to die on a cross and be humiliated by it with his humanity in order for us to share in that relationship. Then we continue on, and he says in verse uh, uh, 13, and again, I will put my trust in him, and he says, here am I, right? Here am I. And now do you understand this verse? And the children, okay? God has given me, and that's Jesus. I'm pointing at me as I were Jesus, but I'm not. But that's the statement, okay? Here I am, and the children God has given me. And so you are part of the family of God, which we're now going to see in order to be saved from slavery, okay, so no longer are we slaves to death and slaves to the devil. We are freed by Christ's death on the cross. But now, because of Christ's full humanity, he is willing and able to call us family, brothers and sisters. But then, because we are family and we are family with the king, we share as co-heirs in the kingdom. That's how that works. And so it continues on and he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Recognize this. 
That's why he did it. Because we have flesh and blood, Jesus was willing to share in their humanity. Purpose statement. So that by the cross, by the humiliating aspect of the cross, that the world looks at and says, how can you worship a God who died such a miserable death? We can have all that we've been given. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And that is the devil. And it's, it's unbelievable, okay, how God works this out. I didn't talk to Tom. I didn't, I didn't pay him 20 bucks and say, hey, this is what I'm talking about, right? I didn't talk to Cliff and Carol and say, hey, throw in something about the devil, right? And yet here we are, and we're talking, and here is this passage talking about that the devil is the one who holds us in slavery, away from God, that wants nothing to do with him. And Christ is willing to die on the cross to free us from that slavery, the death that we are uh, destined for because of him, to be able to be sons and daughters of a living king and then share as co-heirs with Christ in his kingdom. And, notice this, okay, purpose, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so what's going on here is, as we've seen, first and foremost in verses 5 through 9, um, Christ's death on the cross is his crowning achievement and not a disastrous failure. But because Christ's death and resurrection from the grave, we are no longer spiritual orphans. And now we're going to share as being co-heirs with Christ. But in order to do that, I want to show this to you. Warren Wiersbe talks about this idea of being part of God's family. And he says this, Being pure spirits who have never suffered, the angels cannot identify us within our weakness and our needs. But Jesus can. Jesus was made uh, like unto his brethren in that he experienced the sinless, limitless, uh, sorry, the sinless infirmities of human nature. He knew what it was like to be a helpless baby, a growing child, a maturing adolescent. He knew what it was like to be despised and rejected, to be lied about, and to be falsely accused. He experienced physical suffering and death. And the reason that he did that was so that he can identify with us and our frailties. Christ's humanity, which the world will look at and say, how can you worship, is the reason we worship. Because when we now go to our great high priest, who is Jesus, and say, God, I'm struggling here. God, I don't know there. God, help me in my sin here. God, help me in my brokenness there. Jesus can say, I've been there, and I know what you're going through. And yet, Christ never sinned. That's how God can identify with our needs. God doesn't look at us and say, oh man, I'm sorry you're going through that. I've never seen it. I, don't, I can't relate to that. I'm so sorry you're hurting. I'm so sorry you're lonely. I'm so sorry you're depressed. I'm so sorry you're mourning a loss of said person. I'm so sorry that you're dealing with this, but I can't help you there because I have no idea what you're going through. 
This is the passage that says, no, I can't, and I've been there, and I know. But yet, being fully God, I was able to overcome because I never sinned. But I feel your pain. And then in that, he says, I'm willing to free you from slavery. I'm willing not to leave you as orphans. I'm willing to make you and want to make you brothers or sisters in my kingdom. And because of that, you share as co-heirs with me. We continue on, and basically in uh, verse uh, 16 it says, for surely it is not angels he helps. Okay, this is, this is what is being stated. Angels are awesome. Angels are amazing. Angels are unbelievable. But what the author is saying is he's not helping them. He's not doing this for them. He's doing it for you. But Abraham's descendants. Now, can I just ask a quick question? Are we Abraham's descendants? Are we descendants of Abraham? Father Abraham, right? Many sons. Many sons had father Abraham, right? And that's why he did this. And then notice this, for this reason, so that he could do this for us. Here's, here's what he's saying. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Become fully human and yet be fully God. That's why. So that we could be saved from slavery so that we could be freed from the trap of the devil, so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be part of the family of God, so that we could be co-heirs in the kingdom of God. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, purpose statement, in order that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for payment right there, Payment for the sins of the people. Some of you have heard the word propitiation. Some passages might have that he might propitiate for the sins of the people. What I want to do is I want to tell you that propitiating sort of at its core is this. It's averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. Just just boil it down. Averting the wrath of God by offering a gift, a propitiation. And the wrath of God is due to all of us because in God's holiness, being sinners, God can have no part of us because God is holy and we worship a holy God. But the reason that we worship this God is because he was willing to have his wrath appeased by an offering of a gift. And that gift is his son who goes to the cross and die upon it because he's willing to become fully human yet be fully God. And while he doesn't have to do so, he subjects himself to be lower than angels even though he is higher in the created order so that we can be back and appropriated to our rightful place which is to be part of the kingdom of God. 
And so he goes to the cross, and the gift that he gives is his one and only son, the perfect lamb who dies on the cross to bring us life. That's what's being discussed here. That gift is Jesus, the payment for our sins. Albert Muller says this, and I think this helps kind of encapsulate what's being talked about in these passages. The person and work of Christ are intimately intertwined. He is the eternal son who comes to glory through suffering. Don't miss this. He is the eternal son who comes to glory through suffering. That statement right there is speaking to exactly what's going on with the individuals in Jesus' day who are saying, we can't worship a God who died on a cross. That statement right there is going to other religions and saying, how can you worship a God who died on a cross? Right here, he is the eternal son who comes to glory through suffering. As the glorious God-man, he is superior to all things, including the angels. And then I've added this just for context. In this passage, meaning what we're talking about here, the author reminds us that the last Adam is restoring humanity to God's good purpose of having dominion over the world and displaying God to all creation. I am bringing you back to your rightful position as co-heirs with me in my kingdom of which you will reign. Christ is superior to the angels because he himself is the image of the invisible God and the redeemer of the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Don't miss this. The pinnacle of God's creative activity. The angels. No. Mankind. You are the pinnacle of God's creative activity. And because of that, this is what Christ has done. Because he himself suffered. Because he himself suffered. When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The whole reason Christ went to the cross was to free us from our sin, to make us brothers and sisters with Christ, to make us co-heirs in his kingdom, but then to be able to identify with our temptation. And so one of the things that you can do in humility and in grace, but with full boldness, when somebody says, how can you worship a God who died on a cross? You say, I worship a God who died on a cross because that God can identify with my frailty. Can your God do the same? That's what's being stated here. And so when you struggle, when you sin, when you feel alone, when you are broken, when you are hurting, when you are lonely, when you are mourning someone's death, when you are wondering what the future might hold, 
when you feel like you're not good enough, when you think that the whole world is upon you and you cannot hold it together, you can go to the maker of heaven and earth and say, I am freed from my slavery. I am a sister or a brother in your kingdom. I am a co-heir with you and I know you feel my pain. Because it says here, in the final verse, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Today we've looked at this passage and we've asked this question, how can Christ be the savior of mankind when he died such a miserable death? And we've discovered in the first verses that Christ's death on the cross is his crowning achievement and it is not a disastrous failure. We realize that because of Christ's death and resurrection from the grave, we're no longer spiritual orphans. And that because of Christ's suffering, we're no longer slaves to death, but we're co-heirs with Christ. And so what I'm driving home this morning is simply this. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we are no longer spiritual orphans and slaves to death, but we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ.